In our lives, when things don't work the way they're supposed to, it can be a very frustrating experience. From the light switch to the garage door opener, from the TV remote to the heating system, it can be an inconvenience to a downright weak rearranger to get that problem resolved. You ever had that experience in your life where something just doesn't work the way it was supposed to? Now, when people don't work the way together the way you expect, that's a whole other ball of wax. There are different things that can derail a team or a group of people. And God's people are not immune to sin and the interpersonal struggles that result from sin. Godly leadership seeks to lead others back to God's way of doing things and unite others for God's cause once again. And last week, we began to unpack the first part of this chapter and saw the internal issues that Nehemiah found himself dealing with within Jerusalem as the rebuilding project continued on. And tonight, we'll see the conclusions that he reached and the example that he set for God's people and see what we can take away for our setting here today. Because we, as, as a church, you know, we're not a replacement of Israel, but we are, part of, we are God's people. We are his redeemed. And so the things that we see here that are played out, are, there's a lot of parallels to things we see. And what we said is that godly, godliness cultivated by godly leaders and the people of God is the answer to disobedient and dishonest living which causes strife amongst God's people. And that's exactly what we saw. There's disobedient, dishonest living that's going on in Jerusalem. And anytime you live contrary to what the word of God says, there are problems. You get that? We track with that? You see our world around us, right? Anytime you live contrary to the way God says you're to live, it causes issues. Why is there sin? Why does sin cause problems? Because it goes against who God is. And so, especially so in the in the in the group of God's people, that causes just as many issues, if not more. And we looked last time we saw the, the outcry of the people in verses one through five. And there were four different things we saw here. We saw the, the internal undermining that was going on. because, And we said this, uh, we, we, we affirmed this statement last week, that where there are people, there is always a potential for problems. And remember, I said that it's not a guarantee that where there are people, there will be problems, right? I mean, it's not like we're taking some Eeyore view of people, you know, there's always problems. But there's always a potential. Why? Because people are sinful. When, when individuals, groups, when a leadership when, or corporate bodies do not handle problems or act in a godly biblical way, then problems ensue because sin causes issues. And as the people begin to cry out here in the first five verses, the ugly truth of what's been going on in Israel begins to come out. We saw the empty. These people who were working on the wall had children to feed, and they could not do so because they had given of their time, they had given of their the time they would have put into their fields and, and the other things into what? Into rebuilding the wall. And, and they didn't have the food. And they'd given up their health um, and, they, and their own well-being to pitch in. And, then, and that together, okay, so you take that side of it and add that to the famine that's going on in the land. And that large-scale building project required a group effort. And you get this re- recipe for underfed families. And so that, that, that's one issue that leads to the next issue, which is the destitute. So having no food to feed their families 
and living in a famine, there were those who then would mortgage their property in order to buy their food. And they were mortgaging those vineyards, those things they would use usually to grow their own food, to raise their own food. Their homes and their livelihood become collateral in order to purchase that which they so desperately needed to exist, their daily sustenance. And so then, on top of that, comes a whole nother layer of things, and that's the taxes from the Persian Empire. And as I said last time, the Persian Empire was really, really good at, uh, had this policy of returning people to their homelands, but they were also really, really good at collecting taxes. They did that to an extreme. And then you have this group of the enslaved. They had no food, and they had to mortgage their property to buy that food. Now they have no money or, or property or anything to, to pay the, the taxes. And so they borrowed money from fellow Jews to pay those taxes, and eventually those people came back around to collect on the money that they had loaned out for the taxes, and they didn't have anything to, to offer them. I mean, they, they didn't have the food to offer them that they would have grown. They didn't have any way of making income. And so now uh, they, they were being enslaved to these people, and their children being enslaved, and now God's work is threatened from within as the people cry out to Nehemiah for help. And so here's Nehemiah who has just helped guide and shepherd the people. He has led the people by the wisdom of God through outside opposition, this external force that was threatening them. And now he has to deal with something even greater, and that's what's going on inside the, the walls or the somewhat you know, halfway completed walls of Jerusalem. And so from the outcry of the people, we went to the rebuke from leadership. And we saw Nehemiah's anger and his consideration of the problem. Nehemiah saw people disobeying God. They failed the law of God. They failed to show selfless love to one another. We talked about that a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning from James, that the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And so you can go all the way, you can go back to that very basic thing, and, and people, they, the people should have been living in accordance with that, and they weren't. And so rightly, he was angry with what he saw. Sin should make us angry. Now, that should not lead to anger being in control of us. And that's not what Nehemiah does here, and his response indicates that that wasn't what happened. He gave thought and consideration to the next steps he should take. And this is the last thing we looked at was his calling out of wrong. Nehemiah came out very strong in this situation. And we said that sin must be dealt with or it will tear apart God's work. And that goes from an individual level level to a corporate level when we're talking about the people of God. If you do not deal with sin in your own life, it will have an effect. Individually, we are called to deal with sin in our, in our hearts and our lives. When God convicts us of sin, when we see the things we've done wrong, we have to do something with it. And if we don't, it's going to cause more issues. Oftentimes, the sin that, let's take the church setting, a, a sin that a church is dealing with. Okay, say there is a, a major sin issue within a church that a church has to deal with. Where does that come from? 
Most often, it comes from an individual or individuals who didn't deal with sin the way it was supposed to be dealt with. And, and then that, that begins to snowball, right? It begins, to, it begins to, to cause greater issues, and sometimes it causes great division within church bodies. Here, in Nehemiah's context, you have those who were disobeying the law of God, and they were charging interest, or the word is usury, that, 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 that the idea is this outrageous, like you're not supposed to do this in this situation. And, you know, who, who knows how it started? Right? And we're not here to, to, to speculate, right? But do you see how the, the individuals have now caused a, a, a problem that's, that's going citywide, nationwide, really? And the severity of the situation will often inform the severity of the response. And Nehemiah reminded the people, there is an, you know, there's an appropriate time and place for interest, and this isn't it. Instead, what should have happened, love for others should have won out, and it didn't. And so Nehemiah holds these people accountable. God's people are always called to live together for God's glory. And our sin attacks that purpose that we're called to live for the glory of God. And so Nehemiah calls out what is wrong, but then he doesn't leave everyone in this state of called out wrong. He calls for right. He calls for new actions. No matter what sin you're facing in your life, or what sin it is that's affecting your life, there is always hope in the scriptures. There's always hope in God. And I think that we do well that when we call out wrong, we replace it with what is right. I mean, that is the very essence of what the scriptures does in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that it tells us what is wrong, and it helps us than to see what is right. And so Nehemiah, he, he, calls, he calls sin what it is. He calls it sin, he calls it out, but then he, he says this is what we should be doing instead. It says, then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations are enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants and lending them money and grain, please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and oil that you have charged them. What these individuals were doing went against those, the, the, the principles of those who should live in the fear of the Lord. And that statement is going to come up twice in this passage. One in regard here to uh, Nehemiah uh, calling them out, but then also in Nehemiah's own personal life. And that, that phrase comes up over and over again throughout Scripture, that we live in reverence of God, and that informs how we live. And the Bible Knowledge Commentary states here, rightly so, that God's reputation was at stake. Nehemiah says you should be living in the fear of the Lord and, 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 and not be a reproach to other nations around them. God's plan for his people is for them to live in such a way that he is exalted 
to others. That is true of Israel, and that is true for the church today. God's glory is found in God's people living together for his glory. In, in unity and in, and in peace that's only found in God. And so Nehemiah, with that in view, calls for a very specific action. He calls for the charging of interest to stop. I mean, he just he says it plain, you know, what you're doing is not good. This is what you should be doing. And he said at the end of verse 10, please, let us stop this usury, this interest. And Nehemiah includes himself in, in some of the statement here. He mentions of his own testimony that he himself has loaned out money. In verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants and lending them money and grain. And so what you find here, if you, if you go and you study out different commentators, some, some believe that Nehemiah himself here is confessing to doing wrong, that he is, he is a part of the problem. Um, and others don't agree with that statement. And I'll just tell you my personal opinion is I tend to agree with those with the second group. And here's why. Because it was not wrong to loan out things to other people. What was, what was the point that it was wrong when you started what? Charging the interest, right? That was where the line was beginning to be crossed. And so in reaction to what's going on here, Nehemiah is not, it's not saying, hey, I, I'm going to stop charging interest. He, he actually says, I, I loaned out some things. The, but the interest is what was leading to the enslavement of the people and the enslavement of their families. Those that, that we saw last time, they had worked hard and, and diligently to buy back from the enemies. And they were now being re-enslaved. But Nehemiah is going a step further. He's calling uh, for them to, to stop loaning things out and to begin to restore things to people. He mentions here in verse 11, to restore to them the hundredth of what, is, what was taken. What that is, is that was a 1% monthly interest that was being charged. So he's calling for the restoration of that. And before that, look what he says in verse 11. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, not just the, the extra they were taking, but the initial collateral they took. He's, what is he calling for? Is a, it's a cancellation of all debts. And no, this is not the American rescue plan, okay? Before you even rush to the political scene, all right? What is he calling for? He's calling for something from the law of God. Do you know this is in the law of God? It's called the year of Jubilee. And it's prescribed in the law of God that every 50 years that people would be released from their debts, they would, their property would be restored, and there was all types of bondage that the people might be in that they were released from. That was prescribed in God's law. And what was that, if not a picture of the coming freedom of Jesus Christ? That he would rescue people from the bondage of sin. Now, very practically, what does that temper? Well, it tempers exploitation of God's people. That they, that they would live, Leviticus 19, loving their neighbor as themselves. And so every 50 years, you would, have, you would have this that would take place within the, within the people of Israel. And so here... Nehemiah calls for such an action in Judah. 
Now, just think with me for a minute. How many times in the last, you know, in all these years they've been in captivity and taken back, you know, now they're back in Jerusalem. I mean, how many times do you think the year of Jubilee has actually been observed? I mean, it's not happening, right? They're not obeying the law of God in this. Surely they're not obeying the law of God in, in that regard. So he's calling for something that, that goes, that is in line with God's law. And so even loans that were made in lawful ways were to be canceled and the property was to be restored. What is he appealing to? He's appealing to selfless love for others. And Nehemiah is willing to lead the way. That's where I come down on that, on that verse when it talks about, you know, let's, this, I mean, I'm loaning these things out, let's not do this anymore. He's willing to say, hey, I've, I haven't even done what's wrong here, but I'm going to lead the way here. We're going we're to do what's right. Leadership, if we're going to lead for God in our lives, we must be ready to do what is right and help make things right in bad situations. Leadership is not exempt, but sets the tone in all things. Sometimes we get this picture in our minds that leadership is, I get to tell everybody else what to do. Right? Okay? Some of our young guys down here, I think that's how they think of leadership, right? I hear the comments being made up here. Um, You know what leadership is? Leading other people to do what's right. Right? You do that, right? Okay. It's leading other people to do what is right. Standing up for what is right and, and showing other people how to do it. And, and that's true in our homes. You know, as parents, we lead. It's true in our churches that we, we stand up for what's right. It's true in our, in our jobs. Wherever we are, we are to stand up for what is right and to lead the way. And Nehemiah is doing that. And so Nehemiah, he, he calls for what's right. And then we see the reaction of the people there that they promise to do right. Verse 12, so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. The nobles and the rulers respond positively to Nehemiah's call. And I don't know, I, I kind of get this image that for me, I'd be like, oh, whew, you know, like, thank goodness that, that went well, right? Um, it's a blessing when biblical rebuke is met with a biblical response. That's how we get things right. And that's a challenge to our own hearts that when, when, when someone comes to us and shows us biblically, hey, you know, I think you're wrong here, and we got to do that in love, that we respond in a biblical way. And sometimes, okay, a lot of times in our lives too, we, we, have, to, we have to be gracious when things aren't done biblically, right? And even so, Nehemiah illustrates the seriousness of such a commitment. When we say we're going to do things for the Lord, it's a serious thing, and that's what these people were saying. And so what does he do throughout verse 12? Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they should do according to this promise. This was God's work and God's people, and so it is God to whom they are responsible. Nehemiah is not asking them, you know, to sign on the dotted line of Nehemiah's contract. He's asking them to make an oath before God. You broke God's law. You're, you're here to, to glorify God. And that's who you're going to be responsible to. And then 
Nehemiah illustrates the seriousness of such an oath before God. Verse 13, then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And if you ever read that and kind of wondered what that meant, that's, that's okay. I kind of read that and wondered what it meant the first time as well. Um, this, this was a common picture of, of, of condemnation. So men back then would wear robes. Right? They, didn't, they didn't dress like we do today. They wear robes, and around that robe you would have a belt, and that would secure this, this little, they would take a little part of it, and they would secure it up like that, and that was like a pocket you would put valuables, possessions in that. It was, it was part of your protection of those things. And what, what, what he was doing is he was shaking out that part of his robe. So anything valuable he had in that pocket of protection was, would just fall out. It would be gone. And it's a picture, this, shaking out the garment or shaking off the dust of one's sandals was showing condemnation. He was saying that, that if you break this promise to God, so will God do to you. So will he shake out these things. And, and, and Israel, his people, are his precious possession that he keeps securely. But disobedience and sin is met with judgment from God. God keeps his word. And he takes it very seriously when his followers do not. And so, all, and the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. And that word amen says truly, verily, we agree with that. They affirm that. That's why it's okay to say amen in church, right? Because it means we agree with that. Thank you, okay? And this is an incredible story of an incredible victory that's won for the Lord within God's own people. A problem that threatened to tear apart the project was once again dealt with in a godly way. I mean, we've had these issues come up over and over again now, right? I mean, we had um, in in chapter 1 and chapter 2 the issues of, is he going to be able to go? But he dealt with it in a biblical way, spending time with God and praying and asking for wisdom. In chapter 4, you have that outside opposition and force that's gathering, and they dealt with it in a godly way. And now chapter 5, these people who, who threaten to tear it apart from within, and he deals with it again in a godly way, leading the people towards the Lord, and that again strengthens the work. And what we see here, and if you get nothing else, I think this is the point we need to get here. The strength of a leader, the strength of a work or ministry, isn't found in the absence of problems, but in how those problems are handled. A lot of times we look at a, again, let's take our context today. We look at a church and we say, well, we really like that church because they don't seem to have any issues. They don't seem to have any problems. And my answer to that is, well, hang around a while. Right? Why? Because where there are people, there's always potential for problems. Where there's people, there's sin. Right? The strength of a, of a ministry, the strength of a church, the strength of our individual lives isn't found in the absence of problems, 
but in how we handle those problems. How do we handle sin? How do we handle the issues? How do we handle when this happens? Do we go back to the scriptures and do we walk through those things biblically and in the wisdom of God, or do we seek to handle them in our own way? And Nehemiah shows us how to handle things in a way that honor the Lord. And we now further see that Nehemiah practiced what he preached as he goes forward throughout the rest of this chapter. The last thing we see in verses 14 through 19 is the example of leadership. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who come to us from the nations around us, Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten years, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. What you have in that section right there is Nehemiah's example. Now when we get to this part here, starting in verse 14, this is a, we, we kind of move from the real time of what's going on to a reflection. Nehemiah is looking back at the 12 years he spent as the governor that started during this project, and we see this showing of a selfless love to others. And though we may feel, you know, we, we may read that and go, wow, that really borders on some self-aggrandizement there, Nehemiah, you know, telling us all the good things you did. Remember, I want us to remember, who inspired that, reco- that little section to be recorded for us today? God. He wants us to see that. It is a true picture of leading by example. Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem, and as the governor, he would have some expectations that were laid on him. There were visits... Within the Persian Empire, there would be visits by other leaders from within the Persian Empire. And when these leaders came, he would be expected as the governor to entertain those guests. And that's not just, you know, um, have them over, but to make sure that they eat and and they're well cared for while they're there. And so, it was the right of the governor to claim a food and monetary allowance from the people. This will be used to take care of his needs and his desires. However, unlike his predecessors, Nehemiah did not do this. And what was that phrase right in the middle of this passage, of this section? What is it that motivated Nehemiah to this end? The fear of the Lord. There it is again. The reverence and respect for God above all else informed how he acted. He would love others selflessly because he loved God supremely. And the fear of the Lord helps us to obey God despite the pull of our own flesh. Proverbs 3.7 says, 
Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So what is it that helps us to live rightly, to live um, pleasing to God, and to live seeking to separate ourselves from sin is the fear of the Lord, is the awe and reverence and respect of God and who he is. That's what leads us to live in such a way. And so, for the sake of the people, he denied these things to himself. And it says that he set himself and, and, the, and, the, and his servants to work on the wall during that project. And it would seem then that though Nehemiah grew up in captivity, he had means from his own family to take care of these things, and, and so he did. And he lived out in his own life what he challenged other people to do. And we see how much he was doing. We, we can actually you know, put a little bit of a number on this. He regularly fed 150 plus people. That's what we read there. At his table, at my table, were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from nations around us. So on a regular basis, he's feeding 150 people or more. And you thought your family ate a lot, right? Here he is having to feed these, all of these other people. And, and we see the different animals, you know, the, the slaying of an ox every day and the sheep. So over 12 years, Nehemiah provided 4,380 oxen to feed, those, to feed the people. And 26,280 sheep. Do you think he was all in? He fed a lot of people. He gave of his own things to, to show the love of God to others. The situation in Jerusalem was dire. The people were in great need. And once again, Nehemiah did not call on other people to do something he was, himself was not willing to do. Instead, he led by example. Over the years, we've had the privilege of taking many, many teenagers on mission trips, um, some of them in the States, some of them overseas, and over and over again, I mean, I think without exception, every one of those trips, we've said something to this effect. There is nothing you are above on this trip. There's nothing that, that, that we are called to do that we, in the service of the Lord that's, that's menial or we can't, we're not going to stoop to do right? It, it doesn't matter where you come from or what your position is. If, if somebody needs you to sweep the floor, you sweep the floor. If somebody needs you to, do, to take out the trash, take out the trash. If somebody needs you to teach a class, you teach a class. Whatever it is that, we need, that God needs us to do in that moment, we go and we do. And that's really, 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 really easy to do sometimes on those mission trips. Because, you know, we're just going for a few days and they don't know who we are. and It becomes harder and harder sometimes with the people we live with every day. Or people we see week in and week out. But that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's living by example. He's leading by example. He's living out what he called others to do. And through all of it, he trusted the Lord to do his part. Nehemiah's trust comes in verse 19. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Does that prayer make anybody else uncomfortable at first read? 
You know, you look at it, you know, maybe it seems like some kind of little bargain, right? Hey, God, I did something good, now treat me right. And, and I can see where you, where you come from that, you know? But really, what you find here is a trust from Nehemiah to God for God to do what, what he needs to do, and Nehemiah can, will continue to obey. You see, Nehemiah did everything that he did for God and not for himself. And what does God say in Scripture? God says in Scripture that the faithful, his faithful servants, will be rewarded. Now, that doesn't always mean we see that on this side of eternity. Oftentimes, those rewards come in heaven with him, which is the greatest thing we could ever experience. And if we are consumed with earthly recognition or reward, and we seek that out, we can find it. If, if all you're concerned and you're consumed with, if all you and I are, are worried about is that somebody sees what we did in this life, and, and somebody gives us the recognition that we feel like we deserve, we can find that. We can go out and we can find people who appreciate us and we can fill our lives with all of this, these, these accolades. But if we do so, we miss out, one, on, on what it means to live for the glory of God. We don't truly grasp that. And two, we miss out on the greatest rewards that come from our Heavenly Father. Jesus taught this time and again throughout the scriptures. The one I, I remember the, the, off the top of my head is the parable of the, the two men who, who went to the temple to pray. And we talked about that here. But what did Jesus say? You know, that man has his reward. The, the Pharisee that went in there to pray and, and used that prayer as a chance to, to lift himself up. Well, he got what he was looking for. Nehemiah did what was right, and he trusted God to take care of the rest. In our own lives, we need to do what's right and trust God to work out the details. Follow the Lord, live in the fear of God, do what's right, read his word, deal with sin with his help, Serve him in his strength. Minister to others as he calls us to minister. And let God figure it all out, right? This is not a call to, well, that means I don't go to work or I don't do this. No, no, no. Take care of the responsibilities God's given you to take care of. But do what God's called you to do and let him worry about the details of later. And in a culture where, you know, we're so consumed with, making sure we get the, the credit or making sure we, we, we give this person or that person their due, we're not to be concerned about that. And, and truly, if someone comes to us and thanks us for something or gives us praise, and, and we can graciously, of course, accept that, but also graciously give glory and honor to the Lord. I know that it's, it's very common and it's, it's right. I mean, I, I use this phrase all the time. So when I say this, I'm not speaking of anyone more than myself, you know. If someone says thank you for something that we do and we say praise the Lord, right, do we, do we, we have to genuinely mean that. You know, it's not just a, you know, we're just trying to 
kick the can. We just don't know how to say thank you. No, do we genuinely mean that in our own lives when we say that? I'm not banning saying it, please, because I'm going to keep saying it, okay? But I'm going to, I'm going to by God's grace, we've got to mean it when we say it, right? Do we truly mean that? Do we truly do those things, or do we secretly in our own hearts say, well, of course. I mean, it's about time somebody recognized what I do around here, right? And only that, that's only between you and God. Only he knows your heart. Here again, Nehemiah prayed, and then he acted for the glory of God. And with God's glory in view, Nehemiah once again shows God's wisdom to lead God's people. When God's glory truly fills our eyes, our lives look a little different. Our actions look a little different. And, and just how we go about engaging in things is different. Godliness cultivated by godly leaders and the people of God is the answer to disobedient and dishonest living which causes strife amongst God's people. And so if you want to make a difference in your, if you want to see a difference in your own life, if you want to make a difference in your context, whether it's in your home, in your job, in, in the social groups you're a part of, in your church, then it comes down to this. Will you cultivate in your life godliness? Will you live in a way that pleases God? Will you genuinely ask God to show you those things and will you genuinely be willing to change? And make a difference against the strife and the sin that comes in our lives when we don't. God is glorified when his people live out his love to each other and to those around them. Time after time after time, Israel failed that mission, didn't she? I mean, the whole reason they're even in the the position they're in in Nehemiah chapter 5 is because the people quit following God and went into captivity. Now, of course, we have to recognize that that's not without some along the way who showed the goodness of God through her. And that's not without recognizing our own lives. We are just as guilty of that. We are just as guilty of giving that same impression of God to other people. Nehemiah's handling of this situation once again displayed his godly leadership abilities. And we need the Lord's wisdom as we ourselves lead for God, and deal with things that may arise in our own lives. We are not promised a trouble-free life, but we can handle these things graciously and biblically. And God is calling his people still today to live for his glory. So as a church, let us take a right view of his blessings and live in supreme love for him and selfless love for one another. The best way I know how to sum this up tonight is, is by reading you the text of a hymn. So in the words of, of this hymn writer, Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwell together in spirit, in love, in unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance, and love are the fruits of his presence here among us. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn. For the weak find strength, the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging. 
Oh, how good it is to embrace his command to prefer one another, forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we all share in the love of the, of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. So with one voice, we'll sing to the Lord. And with one heart, we'll live out his word. Till the whole world sees the Redeemer has come. For he dwells in the presence of his people. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your word tonight and to glean from it these truths from the life of Nehemiah. Lord, we would be tempted to think that the absence of problems is the approval of God. But very simply, Lord, we in a fallen world are never going to have complete absence of problems in our lives. Oh, sure, from time to time, and maybe if we live walking with you, maybe even a majority of the time, we walk in peace and we walk without major incident. But Lord, we know that we are just as susceptible to sin as anyone else, and so we understand that these things will happen in our lives. But when they do, God, we ask that you would help us to deal with them in a biblical way. That you would give us the, the strength, the wisdom to live in the fear of the Lord and to handle these things rightly. That you would give us the meekness and the um, grace to accept the biblical correction that comes into our lives in times that is necessary. That you would help us to live in a way that would magnify you to the world around us. Oh, how privileged we are to have the opportunity to reflect the Redeemer to a lost and dying world. And we ask that you would, in just a small way, allow our lives and our church, our ministries, and our our everyday interactions to reflect you. And may we have opportunities to share the gospel through that. We ask these things in your honor, your glory, your name we pray. Amen.